Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. Today, I'm joined by someone who jokingly refers to themselves as the God Hypnos come to Earth in human form. He's someone who's lived, eaten and breathed hypnosis for over 40 years and now runs his own hypnosis academy online with students in over 50 countries. I myself have seen some of these online resources and been enormously impressed by his ability to make hypnosis and change work simple and accessible to all. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Mike Mandel to this rapid change conversation. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Howard. I think this is uh, it's fantastic to talk to somebody with shared beliefs. This is great. Absolutely. Absolutely. And hopefully there may be some people out there without those beliefs and uh, we can ruffle a few feathers on the way. Who do let's. It would be such fun. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is going to be a lot of fun as we go (laughs) through this. So tell us a little bit to kick us off uh, what you do and how you got started. Well, let's let's reverse the order. I got started as crazy as it sounds. I was actually a hypnosis savant, and um, I was yanked out of class all the time when we were doing IQ tests in public school, and I was always the last one writing more tests in the hall. They basically said to my parents, your son is a wizard, but we don't know what it is. We can't, it sure as hell wasn't math or woodworking or any of those things. I was good with language and good with theater arts and these things. I, I wound up going right from grade three to grade five, put in a mixed five, six class. So I essentially went from grade three to six, was given a classroom with a sadistic teacher who hated me, wound up hating school, almost had a nervous breakdown as a nine-year-old boy, and uh, then failed you know, high school, failed grade nine, 11, and so on, and went to summer school. And meanwhile, at age 12, I indirectly and inadvertently discovered hypnosis. I saw Walter Gibson's book, The Key to Hypnotism. And at age 12, I was able to induce a cataleptic limb with my friend Wayne Gibbs and stuck pins in his hand and he couldn't feel it and his mother put a stop to that but interestingly I I reconnected with Wayne about 10 years ago he's in his 50s now and he remembers the whole thing so I got his picture taken uh, with me and that was the start the bug bit and I found I had a knack for getting my friends to fight with each other on the way home from school for my amusement I'd found language patterns by accident uh, telling my friend Brian that he had dandruff in his eyes so his eyes would itch and he'd rub rub them endlessly (laughs) by the time by the time I was 21, I had a job with Bell Telephone Company of Canada, 
and um, minimum wage. I was taking home 90 bucks a week. And I went and saw The Amazing Kreskin in November 2000. I'm sorry, November 1974 in Toronto. Loved his show and came home and said to my friend Steve, who was a booking agent, I can duplicate much of what he's doing. And he went, what? So I showed him and he started booking me and I quit my job at Bell Canada and starved for two years. Fortunately, I was living with my parents at the time and I was doing power of suggestion, hypnosis and mentalism and so on. And the bug had truly bitten. And then I did all the courses, you know, and I did a short course with Richard Bandler. I did my NLP practitioner, master practitioner, my trainer's track, which was a two year course and uh, studied with John Grinder, who I've had dinner with and lunch with and became friends with and just got in and studied with some of the best people like Larry Nims who created Be Set Free Fast and Willem Lammers, a Swiss psychologist and my mentor, uh, Derek Bomber, who was a Cambridge, Cambridge linguist passed away in 2000 and learned from the best people I could. So I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, but they nurtured the hypnotic skills I had in an inchoate form as a boy and then did 5,000 hypnosis shows, Canada, US, Britain and Australia and started doing therapy and eventually uh, created Mike Mandel Hypnosis Academy and we still teach at University of Toronto. My business partner Chris Thompson and I three times a year we bring in students from around the world including psychiatrists from Singapore and therapists from India and Egypt and all over the US and Canada and Norway and it's just been an absolute blast. Like I said I've lived, eaten and breathed hypnosis for over 40 years full time and that's I tell all my students they can now say I'm the God hypnosis in human form. They can claim it too because I think good training goes a long way to, to setting us up with good skill sets. That's absolutely amazing, amazing to hear. And I, I've seen some of your online tuitions and as I said in the introduction, been enormously impressed because you seem to be able to explain uh, often what could appear on the face of it when I've seen other trainings to be quite complex ideas, but you're able to explain them very, very simply. Is, is there a trick to, to teaching hypnosis? How do you kind of, how did you, do you come across your style uh, of teaching and training? Uh, twofold, Howard, that's a great question. First of all, I, I do a standard teaching method. I go from the large chunk to the small. Let's start with the concept, tell people where we're going, do it, illustrate it with examples, let them practice it. So I'm breaking it down into usable chunks and I simplify whenever possible. My Neo-Ericksonian approach simplifies the methods of Milton Erickson because with 20% of the methods, you can probably get 80% of the results. So we have Pareto's principle operating. And the second half of it is I've modeled a lot of teaching from people like Derek Bomber and John Grinder who taught me to uh, entertain consciously and teach unconsciously. And that way people are having a blast. If they're having fun and they're laughing and interacting with other people, having a great time, the learning curve goes way, way up. Yeah, I mean, and certainly your, your whole style uh, is quite quite amazing. And there's a, there's a really funny video on YouTube that really tickled me. And I sat there just literally chuckling. And it was all about your beliefs, what you believe at Mike Mandel Hypnosis. In fact, it, I wanted to ask you specifically, um, due to Jerry's theory that trance is dursative, have you got any hyper-Socratic methods of dealing with it? Or do you recommend <laughs> staying solely with the glanative? I'm saying, I'm saying stay with glenation in every conceivable way. It's going to get dursative if you listen to Jerry at all. <laughs> you have been following me way too closely. You get too much time on your hands. When <laughs> so, so in terms of focusing a little more in detail on, on rapid change, are there any, because we spoke briefly 
before about this and you mentioned to me that change you believed it was actually normative for it to be rapid yes yes i i really believe that like it when when change happens it happens very very quickly it may take a lot of time to get the person to threshold where they're ready to change but when it does happen it's almost immediate i mean think about it the other way around howard things like phobias People typically get phobias very, very quickly. <laughs> if it, the initial sensitizing event is you see a tarantula climbs up, climbs up your arm and that activates the phobia, you can get a phobia that can paralyze you for 40 years and you can get it in about five seconds. The brain learns quickly. I think it was Richard Bandler said that you know, the brain doesn't like to go slowly. It's like watching a movie like Star Wars, one frame every 15 minutes. You wouldn't get much out of it. So so why is it that, I mean, the world that you and I work in, live in, breathe in, you know, is seeing rapid change happen all the time and it's, it's very normal. So how is it that the world has not embraced this idea that rapid change can happen yet? Well, yeah, that's a great question. I think it's twofold as well. The, the first aspect is people who have been trained maybe classically in psychoanalysis or things like that, as Milton Erickson was. Um, they didn't realize they don't realize that this is neuroscience there's reasons why change is happening rapidly you can burn in new neural pathways you can use Hebb's law to your advantage and have neurons shake hands with each other a little neuroscience as Melissa Tears says goes a very long way and recognizing this means we have a framework for understanding it it's very very quick and you don't have to condition things in forever the I think the other aspect of it is money honestly I mean think about it if I'm making 90 bucks a week or every two weeks with someone coming in and dealing with a problem, it is not to my advantage to have the person get well. Uh, when I was doing full-time therapy 20-odd years ago, a woman came into my office and she'd been in therapy for 12 years for the same issue. And I said, what does that tell you? And I watched her eyes. She did a transderivational search, went through all her brain systems, and after 10 seconds, she said, it's not working. I said, bingo. You know, like, it, there's, there's a money aspect. And if, if people want to make a lot of money off you, it's way, way better if they can keep you coming back than they can fix things. But I, I believe that we should be empowering people because ultimately they make the changes anyway. So how is it that, because I've, I've experienced people from traditional schools of therapy witnessing what I would say is rapid change and dismissing it because whether it's confirmation bias or it doesn't match their own model of the way things work, but they're, they're quick to dismiss it. What, what can we do to get people uh, to, to open up? I'm not sure. I maybe get more people who are very highly placed listening to us because I, I'm convinced that one of the things you said, confirmation bias, I'm convinced it is that. If we have confirmation bias, we, ha we are going in with our a priori that things cannot happen quickly. And if they do, they can't go deep. And if they do go deep, they're not going to last. And even if all those things work, there's still got to be something wrong with it. We just haven't found it yet. So it's, but when we fix someone quickly or show them how to fix themselves quickly and the change lasts forever and they feel terrific, I can't find anything wrong with it. I have a problem with that. So it can be difficult educating people, but if enough highly placed psychiatrists, psychologists or whatever make the shift, it might get other people to listen. Do you think there is a shift in that direction? I do. I do. Because I've, I, in my own academy, we have a lot of medical doctors. We have some pain management specialists. We have um, at least three psychiatrists. Two of them came from Singapore to study with me. Wow. And they're, they're opening the model. Like they're, 
you know, they have to be medical doctors to be psychiatrists. And they're, they're looking at alternatives. They're just saying, this is how we're trained. Let's see what else is out there and either discard it or examine it. But that's the problem. <clears throat> when we have such a strong bias, we will discount that which tends to challenge it. Whereas true science will follow the evidence wherever it goes. <laughs> My brother-in-law, who's a bit of an idiot, well, he's a complete idiot, but I can say that because he is. He said, well, and no one knows which one I'm talking about because there's four of them. He said, he goes into every discussion point with no a priori at all. I said, that's your a priori, that you don't have one. You know, like, these things, <laughs> these things go deep. And if we can get past that and we can start to look at options and what if possibilities, I think to encourage both you and I in this and other change workers who are doing some great quick stuff, I think the pendulum will eventually swing the other way. It always does. I think that's, uh, I mean, I, I, I agree. And that's the trend that I, I'm seeing as well. And that's part of my, my raison d'etre, isn't it? To uh, to begin to get people to, to open up to what's possible. Um, I still believe though, that there are people, even from similar fields to, to the ones that we work in, that people believe that understanding why you have a problem is the key to making it go away. Right, right. And that's such a common thing. You know, we have a present state and we have a target state. And what I'm going to initiate is a, a search to find what their target state is, maybe using a clean language question like, what would you like to have happen in a perfect world? Well, I want to be, and people will typically tell you what they don't want instead of what they do want. Well, I don't want to be anxious anymore. Okay, suppose I put you in a trance so you're always terrified of carpets. Well, I don't want that either. See, the list of what we don't want is infinite. I say, you know, we don't want to be tin miners on Jupiter. We don't want a dozen root canals, even if they're free. And we don't want to build bonfires in our bedroom. It's an infinite list. So if I can get people thinking about what they do want and then get them to express it in visual, auditory, and kinesthetic terms, we can now start moving them towards that. Because this whole idea that the problem state has to be examined endlessly is nonsensical. If if the problem state contained the solution, the person would have solved it already. If the if you want to explore the past, go ahead. But it's just interesting as a history lesson, perhaps, but it's not going to fix anything. So is there a role for traditional therapeutic intervention? You mean talk therapy? Mm. Yeah, I, I think there's... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got to be so careful how I answer this. I think there's a, a wonderful um, role that could be <laughs> financial. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it's what Griffin and Tyrrell, the Cambridge uh, psychologists who wrote Human Givens Theory, mm -hmm. they call it anti-therapy. And that's a really strong statement. So I'm just quoting them. If anybody doesn't like it, go and argue with them. I'm just the messenger. But they call it anti-therapy because the problem state it, talking about it endlessly just reinforces it. It re-anchors it. And, you know, here's a thing, Howard. I had a, a good friend who was in for therapy with his wife, couples therapy, many years ago. And they were going through a lot of issues, but they wanted to build some new sk skill sets. They went to a traditional therapist in Toronto, and she told them it's okay to fight with each other, but he can't leave the room and she can't raise her voice. What they have to do is every time they have an argument, they have to hold hands and look each other in the eyes while they're arguing. 
Well, guess what happened? Not surprisingly, this peak state became anchored to hand-holding and looking at each other. Peak state of bad stuff, not a good one. And they were at a national park in eastern Canada, Nova Scotia. Their marriage was getting better, and they went for a walk through this beautiful park, and they're bird watching, and the weather's great, and the scent of pines, and they're holding hands, and they looked at each other and started talking. And before long, they were screaming at each other. It fired off all those anchored problem states again. And that's what happens when we explore it endlessly. So what you're saying is that you would work more structurally with how they create the, 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 the problem state, but in the present. In the present. I'm gonna, I want to find out what they want and find ways they can create it. Even John Grinder said, if you build in enough positive resources, a lot of the time that will overwhelm the negative stuff and just wipe it out. And if they have a pattern they're running, a neural pathway that they are habitually running, I'm going to teach them to interrupt and break that pattern and start building in a new one. Uh, in my own case, there was a one particular person who used to irk me endlessly some time ago, and I spent untold hours obsessing about how much this person had ripped me off and all these other things. And then one day I went, hang on, why aren't I practicing what I'm telling other people? So I would intercept the pattern right at the beginning before it built power. As soon as I'd start thinking about this guy, I'd say, stop. I'd physically say, stop. And with my hand, I'd take the picture of him and push it away from me and shrink it down. And now I would label it. I've dissociated from it. And I would label it and say, that was before. Now I'm living a good life, which starts to open a new pathway, and I breathe and feel powerful. The good thing is, the first day I was doing this endlessly. By the second day, I hardly had to do it at all. And now he doesn't cross my, my mind unless I'm mentioning this particular <laughs> case because those, those neural pathways are going to become pruned, and they're going to fall away, and new ones are going to get in their place. So would you argue <clears throat> that in order to create change, there's an element of taking responsibility over our own thinking? Yeah, I work with a thing. I teach my students something I call the Mandel model of therapy. And basically, when I say therapy, it could be generative change too. I work with athletes and so on, Canadian judo champion, a lot of different people. But the model is still the same. The Mandel model basically says this. It's just a way of looking at things. I say, your client is in a labyrinth, largely of their own creation. So they're in this maze and it's got false turns, doorways that lead nowhere, loops that go round and round. It's dark, it's scary, there's monsters. And as much as we would love to jump in and drag them out of the labyrinth and kill the Minotaur for them, we can't. But what we can do is sufficiently illuminate the pathway that they walk out under their own power and kill their own monsters. So they have to do the change work. But we can guide them into more resourceful states, into different possibilities. So I'll use a wide variety of things to do this from you know, a six-step EFT method I use or, or um, hypnosis itself or NLP new code or timeline therapy or clean language, whatever is necessary for the task at hand. But the bottom line is I'm putting the locus of focus the, the change itself is the responsibility of the subject and when they recognize that and fully get that into their being they change yeah. because it's their responsibility i mean you know about it how how annoying it is to have someone who sits there and waits for you to do something fix it you know fix it fix it and that's traditional with uh, stop smoking with hypnosis ideas, oh, you just go to a hypnotist, he says, don't smoke anymore, and you don't. I mean, that can happen, but I would I would expect that to be the exception rather than the rule. The person, the smoker, for instance, still has to take responsibility to do one very particular thing to make it work, and that is 
they got to stop. So talk, let's talk about stopping smoking for a second. And I've heard this before, yeah. that, and I've had it before myself, where you know they come in and the reason they want help with stopping smoking is because they can't do it themselves. So they come to right, you right. to help them <laughs> and you're going to charge them money. But ultimately, if they don't stop, that's because they didn't do it. Yeah, you're right. Because people think it's a large percentage of people who, and I don't do smoking cessation. I don't even really see clients anymore because mm. I'm teaching all the time. But when I did do it, I noticed there was a pattern that people would come in wanting – they'd want – that this is a paradox, Howard. They would want to find a way to quit smoking without quitting. Yeah. They're always looking for a way of avoiding the actual quitting part but somehow having it just happen. And if people who want to quit smoking really want to quit, if they're a threshold where something has to change, has to be now, and has to be me, and they can congruently say that – all they have to do is stop because that's what it takes. I used to smoke years ago, and then one day I thought, this is ridiculous. I don't want to do this anymore. It only makes my hair stinky and all these things. I was a much younger man many, many decades ago, and I just quit. And that's so you talk about threshold. And yeah. How important is threshold in terms of change? Because you mentioned it a number of times already. Yeah, threshold is crucial because when someone reaches threshold, which again is something has to change, has to be now and has to be me, the choice of therapy is almost unimportant. Almost anything will work at that point. The person is on top of a wall and you just got to push them off to make sure they land on the right side. And, um, you know, we're back to that paradox of the number one reason people change is if they like the therapist. <laughs> the therapy is sort of that that's actually used can be sort of secondary in importance in a lot of cases. Mm. So threshold, when someone really wants to change and with smokers, you'll really see this. Yes, I, I, I have to quit. They don't, a lot of the time you won't hear them say, I'm going to quit. It's, I have to quit. They're still not at that point. And, um, I, a, a relative of mine wanted to quit smoking, but not because he was at threshold because his wife was on his case. And now, so that something has to change. It has to be now, and it has to be her. You know, it's, if we're doing it for someone else, it's it's not going to work. The person has mm -hmm. to congruently grab onto that. But this is going to be the same with any change. There's there's benefits behind some behavior. You know, people who are depressed, there's benefits to that behavior. My a man who lives on my street, he's depressed. He has been for years. He's he's on permanent disability. But what does it enable him to do? Well, to lie on the couch and watch TV all day. He doesn't have to work, doesn't have to do anything. Mm. So there's a benefit. So if you're working with someone or you're, you're, you're taking them through change, how does the Mike Mandel model uh, build up threshold or take them well, to it that? Starts, yeah, good point. It starts with de-traumatize de first. That, that's my rule. Yeah. So basically, you, you take the garbage out before you try to build anything new. And even with the case of someone in sports, if someone comes to me for sports performance, through the interview process, I'll find where the trauma is. There'll be something. It might be, oh, my father told me I'd never be a swimmer. And that's still hanging on. Or one swimmer I worked with, um, he was always ahead in 200-meter freestyle, which is three turns. He'd be ahead of the pack. And then he'd panic, and his final turn he'd make too soon and would get no push off the wall and would finish dead last. And he was going to the World Fire and Police Games for this. Now, he had the trauma. He wanted me to just tell him to swim faster, but he had the trauma of this hanging over him. So we erase that first, the negative charge of the past, and now we build in the resource states. And when the trauma's gone, people start getting motivated about changing, whether we're using EFT or, or whatever it is, hypnosis. And once they're motivated to change, watch out. So 
we've talked about threshold being important and you sort of hinted at how you might go about that. Where would you say rapport fits into all this and how would you define rapport? Good question. Rapport is crucial. John Grinder, I had lunch with him a number of years ago and he said to me, I was asking him some questions. He said, let me ask you one. He said, what do you think are the four most important, important aspects of NLP? And I thought for a minute and I said, Meta model, because without that, you can't collect information. Rapport, because without rapport, you have no bridge to the person's model of the world. Congruence, because if you're not congruent about what you're saying, your client won't believe it and they won't actualize it. And um, calibration, because if you're not calibrating the shifts, they can fly right by you. And he said, exactly right. That was the, the, the four that were crucial. Now, rapport is the glue that holds trance together. It's the glue that maintains a therapeutic relationship where we enter the client's model of the world to such a degree that the bridge we build is empowering for them and gives us the tools to finish the job. And the old way, of course, was modeling the person's breathing patterns, offering their language back like Erickson did, copying their spinal tilt of their head, um, copying their gestures, mirroring, matching, all of these things, they all work. But John Grinder, his method I loved, and you can tell he had a profound influence mm -hmm. on me, still does. He said, he said the number one rapport secret, he said, pretend congruently that the other person is the most fascinating and important person you have ever met in your life and congruently keep believing that during the entire therapy. And when you do that, the mirror neurons do the rest. It's an amazing thing. And years ago, I had a keynote for Canada Border Services, which is our immigration customs service. I was doing one on communication and change into a lot of those. And I had two and a half hours before my train home to Toronto. I was sitting in the college where the talk was given, went, found a corner table. I just wanted to get away from every other human being. I was too busy. And a man walked over, a big customs agent found me and he sat down. And as he was sitting down, he said, mind if I sit down? What am I going to say? No, he's already sitting there. I know you can't sit here. So I said, no, go ahead. It's all right. And I didn't want to talk to anyone. So I thought, okay, let's test the theory. So I congruently pretended he was the most fascinating, important person I'd ever met. And I talked to this guy for two hours. And I'll tell you, Howard, he was fascinating. This guy used to rappel onto the decks of Russian trawlers off the west coast of Canada for fishing violations. He had a fascinating life. And when it was done, he stood up and he said, oh, I know you've got to get your train. Thank you so much for spending the time. And I said, no, man. I said, thank you. I said, this is one of the most interesting conversations of my life. And it was because everybody has something to offer. And when we treat them with dignity and treat them like they're important because by being human, they are. Everybody has something to offer. And that rapport bridge enables us to do sterling therapy very, very quickly. That's so I, I love that. I just love that. Absolutely love it. Tell me, is, is rapport the same for you as empathy? No, and I am a natural empath, but I have to give two different versions of rapport, first of all. So um, the hypnotic version of rapport is quite different than the NLP version. The NLP version is entering the client's model of the world. So I... I can see that as second position in NLP terms, which of course would be empathy. I just don't typically see it that way. I see more the model of the, their their beliefs, all of these things. Um, the hypnosis version of rapport is a different thing altogether. It just states that when someone is in a somnambulistic state, they will only respond to the hypnotist and nobody else. Mm -hmm. 
unless the other person is included in the loop. So, you know, I, I think technically you are correct in tying it with empathy, second position, but um, I guess I never really look at it that way. I'm looking at the same thing in just a, a slightly different framework. Well, I guess let me rephrase because I'm, I'm just curious and I'm not sure what, what I think about this yet, but could, could you help someone and affect change without empathy? I'm sure there's lots of people who do. Uh, it's not part of my model, that's for mm. sure. Derek Bomber, my mentor, he, he had an unbelievable faculty for entering second position with someone. And he talked about the importance of, so, so for those who listening who may not know, first position is I, it's all ego. Second position is experiencing the world from that person's perspective. And then the third position is dissociated and seeing the entire situation from the outside with no self-awareness. So he was so good at going to second position, you could put a coin in either hand and sit there and he could sit opposite you. And in about 30 seconds, about nine times out of 10, he could tell you which hand it was in. Hmm. And he said he did it by just going to second position congruently and feeling it. Now, I, I can't do that, but he, he got me with it a lot of times, but he used to warn about something he called shitty second. And what that is, is going into second position with someone, dipping into that empathy really strongly. And he warned that oncologists have one of the highest cancer rates. And he thought it was from going into second position with people who are dying of cancer over and over and over. And he said, you have to shake it off at the end of the day. You've got to have a bailout line like an escape route and he told us as therapist that when you're done get up stretch move your body move your arms smooth your eyes switch breathe to shake off that second position so that it's not being dragged home with you tell me because obviously as you know my passion is to get people to to, to go what really Can, did that really <laughs> happen i mean that's surely not um so can you can you give me some real examples of people that have you know you've worked with they've come in one way or and there has been some incredible shift and it's lasted oh, for sure and, and it's lasted yeah i can give you one from last week i just finished a five-day training architecture of hypnosis i teach at university of toronto and we had people from all over the world we just recently had our first student from zanzibar and we one just came back from india to do his master course and in the class, there was a woman from Montreal. And all week long, I'm getting them in really good states. And when they're in that powerful state, whether they're laughing or we're putting them in a powerful state through breathing shifts at the beginning of the day, I get them to anchor it. So I'm setting a trigger to that neurological pathway, that neural pathway. And the anchor I like to use, because it doesn't burn out quickly, because you seldom do it by accident, is touching your thumb firmly to the tip of your ring finger, squeezing, looking at it, and saying, awesome. Now, by doing that, they're anchoring in three systems, kinesthetics, they can feel it, visual, because they're looking at it, and saying, awesome, so they're auditory system as well. So they were doing this all day, I'm sure all week, just setting up awesome anchors and building this incredibly powerful state that they could access essentially at will. So then I demoed in our live webinar to the world. We had the woman from Montreal came up because I asked for someone who had something they wanted to change very quickly. And I said, pick it something, you know, a five or a six subjective units of distress out of 10, not a screaming phobia, because I want to demonstrate how quickly we can use this method. And she didn't no. know what I was going to use. And she picked 
an, a thing came up to the front and I said, what is it out of 10? And this is all on video. She said, it's a nine. Went, okay, this is going to be a bit more of a grind than I expected. She didn't understand the point. I said, okay, I want you to get into that state, feel a bit of it, because I want that vaded ego state in the executive, the one that's feeling the problem. And she, I watch her state change and she's looking pissed off. And I said, what are you going to call this state? And she said, booger. And I went, okay. I said, now dissociate from it, push it out there. So she pushed it out with her hand. I said, make it small and over there. And she's looking at it. And I said, now stare at it and fire your resource anchor. So she looks at this non-existent thing, fires her resource anchor, and she says, F you at this thing across the room as she fires her resource anchor. And you could see her state change. And I got her to shake it off and say, calibrate. I said, how bad is it out of 10? I thought she'd say like maybe a three because it was such a shift. She said, it's zero. It's gone. Now I'm going to fire her convincer strategy. I said, what? You've got to be kidding. How can it be gone so fast? She said, it is. It's gone. I can't even find it. Now that's going to reinforce it that she's proven to me that it's gone. But that's one of the quickest shifts I've ever seen. Something she's carried for a long time that would drive her crazy. And it's just re resource overwritten very, very quickly in the physical structure of the brain. That, that's really cool. And interesting that, you know, I've, I've heard so many people like yourself get to the end of a change work piece and then say, well, you know, come on, go and find it. Can you find <laughs> it? Come on. Uh, and I think there are there is a danger, uh, certainly if, when, when someone's starting out, that they can be a little too fragile around the change. Oh, I, totally, totally. Yeah. And let's not test it too much just in case. <laughs> it, it's crazy. It's people afraid to tell. And here's where I totally respect Anthony Jacqueline. He gets people to test their hypnosis work. And I'm, think, I'm thinking, thank you. Thank you. Somebody gets this. People are afraid to test it in case it falls apart in the office. Well, isn't it better to have it fall apart in the office so you can do something else instead of having it fall apart in the real world, whatever yeah. that is? You've got to test. You've got to future pace. Because if you're not doing that, you're, you're doing incomplete work. One of my coworkers in my initial NLP training in 1992-93, he suffered from premature closure, which is what our NLP trainer Chris Dunkley taught us. He thought he had it figured out that the work was done and was on to the next thing, but he wasn't testing and he wasn't future pacing. So we had to design a metaphor to fix that. But yeah, and when you get the client to say, no, it's gone. And Tad James does a lovely thing. He makes them say it three times. Come on. I, I, I People come in, they pretend to be fixed. No, it's fixed. He said, if they say it three times, it will fire their convincer strategy and it's not coming back. Yeah. I, I love that. And I it, similar to a conversation, I, I, I think I'm, it was with a provocative therapist uh, around this idea of if, if, they, if they say there's been a positive change, you simply claim it was, well, I'm sure it wasn't, it was just indigestion or something <laughs> like, because it puts them in a position where they have to turn around and they say, well, no, 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 it really, it wasn't indigestion. It, it really was positive. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? I love it. I love it. And, and you know, I'll, I'll do backflips if I have to, whatever's going to get the change for them. It, it really doesn't matter. You know, I, I cured one woman's depression, or she cured it, actually, let's be honest, mm. um, just by smelling underneath my wristwatch and, and smelling a wall socket. I just kept pattern interrupting. It wouldn't let her get back in. And she started talking about her trouble, and I lift up my watch, and I went <laughs> and sniffed underneath it. And she was horrified and said, what did you just do? And I hide the watch behind my back. I said, nothing. And she said, you're smelling under your watch. I said, no, I'm not. I said, I'm a therapist. Why would I do that? She said, I guess you wouldn't. I said, that's right. Okay, so I ask her questions that are irrelevant to what's your husband's middle name? Has he ever been to Spain? Do you have a cat? Does it sleep? 
sleep on the bed in the month of May? Do you dream in color during thunderstorms? Getting your mind off the problem and, okay, go back into the problem state. Tell me about your depression. And I'm doing smelling under my watch and smelling the wall socket. And she's got furious with me, but she couldn't get back into the bad state anymore. She just couldn't find it. So we had overwritten it by doing ridiculous pattern interrupts. And that's a woman who'd been in therapy for many, many years. So how do you build up your pattern interrupting muscle in that (laughs) some therapists, you know, are going to get, I mean, I I believe that I always believe in every, in every therapy session I've ever seen or witnessed that trance is going to happen. I just, I'm just never sure whether it's the, uh, the patient or the client that's going to hypnotize the therapist into believing that they can't be fixed or whether (laughs) it's the other way around. Um, what trends do you wind up in? You know, yeah. is it a good one or a bad one? Yeah. And I think I there's t- this respectful idea that you have to listen to someone and let them let them talk about the problem. Um, and people can struggle sometimes. They might be listening out there and thinking, well, how, how do I interrupt? How do I interrupt? Yeah, that's a great point because when I was doing therapy a lot, I, I always scheduled 90-minute uh, sessions because then people weren't butting up against each other if somebody else arrived. And most of the time, the change happens quickly when it happens. And this would give me permission to do a long or possibility to do a long intake with them and let them do what they think they have to do. Talk about their problem. A lot of people think that's necessary. So I'll let them ventilate this stuff and say, then I'll say, okay, we've talked about this for a long time. Are you ready to fix it? And Mm -hmm. then I'm demarking that talking about it hasn't done anything. I'm making that clear and implicit that, yeah, okay, so let's put that behind us and let's move forward and fix this thing. And so this wasn't always the case, but sometimes I found that very, very useful. And a great pattern interrupt, it's good to have a few of them. A great one that Carl Smith uses I love, and it's, it's, I don't think he came up with it. He'd be the first to say he didn't, but I've seen him use it really well with this kinetic shift when he just suddenly will point at the person and say, quickly, what's your phone number backwards? And they, uh, and as they go, uh, he says, "Never mind, I don't even care." <laughs> like, which in a way becomes the second pattern interrupt, and it's a, it's a very powerful thing. Just breaking state, so they cannot run their old pattern. Melissa Tears said she's sick of their old stories, mm-hmm. so as soon as they start, she holds her hand up and yells, "Stop!" And they, oh, like she'll yell it at them, but that breaks the state right away. And once we break the state, we can now move them somewhere useful. It's something that I, I, I do, uh, but it took me a while to build up the, I don't know, the confidence to be able to look at someone and go, okay, enough, stop. Yeah, because some of them are so ludicrous. I'd sometimes look out the window and the line that Chris Thompson, my business partner, loves is, look at that bird on Mrs. Coldheart's roof. It's just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you just get a handful of these ridiculous things. But the smelling under the watch, that's a great one because the Mm. person's pouring their heart out about this stupid stuff, how much they hate their life, and you seemingly get distracted and start smelling under your wristwatch. And it's (laughs) it's nuts. I mean, it's supposed to be nuts. And (laughs) I love it. uh... Tell me how well you do when you use it. I I used to, I'm not suggesting I would ever use that every single (laughs) session from now on. No, I, I, I think that's great. But it's also interesting that an interruption doesn't have to be just a verbal kind of stop. It's, uh, it can be something more subtle that they notice. Yeah, anything that breaks state. Have them stand up, wave their arms, move around, then sit down. That'll break state. You know, the, the Grinder model says that your performance in any task is based on um, your 
your your state and your state is based on your physiology and your physiology is based on your breathing so if we change any of these we'll change everything below us we change the state we change the performance we change the physiology move a lot change our body position we'll change the state and the performance and if we change the breathing like in qigong martial arts yoga we change everything i mean it absolutely changes everything it's uh, it's so cool so what would you what advice would you have for people who maybe either are uh, doing talking therapies and want to begin to veer into this kind of change work or are just beginners to change work what advice would you have in terms of getting good at this stuff i'd say become a generalist first um just like every every medical doctor who's a you know dermatologist or cardiologist neurologist they're all a gp first so get some good training and get a broad base of understanding get get some neuroscience in you learn some nlp learn some hypnosis get a lot of different skills because the law of requisite variety a classic thing you know the in any system or group of systems, the element with the most choices will be the one in control. So get a lot of choices, a lot of different behaviors, and avoid the mistake, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything will look like a nail. I would never do the same technique twice in one week, or even the same hypnotic induction, because I'm always aiming at building in variety of different responses. The more options you have, the better the better therapist you'll be and be open-minded you know like things can sound crazy when i did my first meridian-based psychotherapy training with willem lammers a swiss psychologist in about 1995 tapping was just coming in and i thought this is insane this is stupid my wife said well don't close your mind go and take the course so i did and i was the person he demoed on i'd had to put my bull terrier to sleep because he was seriously ill with a neurological problem and i carried the grief for that like for a couple of years mm -hmm. and in front of the class in three minutes he totally erased it and i thought okay whether i like to believe it or not this is gone i mean I, I can talk about it now there's no pain i've got the memories so yeah open your mind to some of the other stuff and if you like it, if it works for you, keep it. If not, discard it. But never shut it out before checking it out. Yeah, I, I think such such good advice. So are there any books that you can recommend that should be kind of a, a go-to place, two or three books that stand out for you as being ones that have impacted you? You know, really, I, and it's I'm not a huge Tony Robbins guy, but I respect him for what he's done in taking NLP and making it more mainstream. And I think his first book, Unlimited Power, is still a fabulous book, and it's a great one to empower people to take control of their own states and their own lives. That would probably still be my number one. Yeah, very. What cool. about you? What, what's on your list, Howard? Oh, crikey. Well, people have to tune into my podcast episode to find out. But, uh, but <laughs> well, I'll be doing that. Uh, well, there we go. So a, a sneak a sneak preview for me, I think, would be one of the first books that I read on, on NLP was Frogs into Princes. Just oh, be, great book. Yeah. Just because the tenacity of doing something different, it kind of was, for me, like taking blinkers off. Like going, what? <laughs> really? fabulous book and so is the hypnotic equivalent again transformation transformation yeah, great book and it was those two and i i, I me and a friend had, had, had split the cost of buying both of them and then he read transformations <laughs> and i read better frogs into princes and then we swapped and then we discussed <laughs> and uh so that, that they were my first uh intros into into this world and then got hooked that's, and went and had to go and uh, nice. and do it but i read unlimited power as well fairly swift after and ended up on a uh, an unleash the power within course oh yeah um, how did it go it was great. I, I, it was life-changing, absolutely life-changing. And uh, I, I almost signed up. He's got this thing called Mastery University, and I signed up for that. And then someone said, you know, he's doing NLP. 
And I and I went really. What's that? What <laughs> yeah, exactly? Yeah. What's that? And suddenly, and I went and I thought, well, hang on a second. I could take this money and do mastery university, and change yeah. my my life, or I could take the money and go and learn NLP and do and help other people as well as myself. Fantastic. And that's 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 for me kind of how my journey really began at a at a fairly dark time in my life where I found myself on this course and suddenly it was like someone took the blinkers off it was just that's uh, wonderful eye-opening. that's wonderful you know howard that's a great great way to put it i really believe that those of us who want to be agents of change we have to care about people uh, and if we do and if we are willing to confront our own darkness as my wife puts, puts it and look into the abyss and see our own liabilities and deeply flawed natures because we are all deeply flawed and we're all wounded at some level if we're willing to deal with our own stuff it makes us far more effective as therapists but we have yeah. to be willing to look at it and face it i mean if, if i'm honest on reflection um looking back at some of my experiences with some of these you know very loud out there pumping music thousands of people i think there is and i have seen it if i'm honest uh, what i would classify as i don't say the dark side of personal development but a, yeah, yeah. a slight issue of what they do is they can they can pump you up into such heightened emotional states where you are totally juiced up on yeah. life but that it's i would dare say unmaintainable or not being able to integrate it within your everyday life. So how do I how do I put my kettle on to make a cup of tea in a 100% yeah. juiced up state so that when I fall off the wagon and I have a down a down day, I suddenly go oh I well I don't have any strategies now I'm just uh, I, I guess it's just oh no I better go back on the course I better go back. On the <laughs> Isn't course. that the truth? I, I spoke about this just a few days ago to a number of my students in class and yeah there's. A huge percentage of people will go to these things, be really ramped up, and they're going to be millionaires within the next year, and this is going to change, and this, and this, and this. And one of the sad things that happens is when we start to make real progress, what I call this basement people and balcony people in our lives. Balcony people lift us up, and basement people drag us down. And a lot of people don't like it when we quit smoking, start living better, you know, get in shape, get happier, and they'll do what they can to drag us down. And one of the, the sagest piece of wisdom I can offer I got from my wife of uh, coming up to 36 years and I still call her my first wife just to keep her on her toes mm-hmm. but she says um, you know you periodically have to fire people from your life you, you yeah. really do life is too short and don't let toxic people get a foothold in your life when people prove to be toxic and are ba- basement people dragging you down fire them move on and um, because you want to surround yourself with those who will lift you up. And unfortunately, people come back from these transformational rallies and that. And a lot of people are confronted by basement people right away. Mm-hmm. And that will drag them down. And a lot of it simply is not maintainable because it is emotional. But if you're changing things at an unconscious level and building in new behaviors as a result, then I think it's going to last. Listen, Mike, if people want to uh, like what you've got to say and they, they want to get in touch, they want to find out more about you, where can they go? How can they do that? Oh, fantastic. Thanks, Howard. And and then I'm going to make an offer to you. Um, Mike Mandel Hypnosis, and Mandel has one L. MikeMandelHypnosis.com. We've got our online training, Mike Mandel Hypnosis Academy, and we teach at University of Toronto three times a year. And like I said, the world comes to us. So MikeMandelHypnosis.com. And you can also check out our awesome brain software podcast, either on our website or on iTunes. We've been up there for five years at least. We've got 84 podcasts up, and we're still rated 
five stars, not 4.8, but solid five after all those years. Check out Brain Software. And my question, Howard, mm. is would you like to be a guest on Brain Software? Absolutely not. Oh, dang. Of course, I, I of course. <laughs> I, thought you'd, because... I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> well, I will. It's by invitation only, and we get asked all the time. People want to be on it, but I, I like what you're doing. We have the same model of the world and therapy, as far as I can tell, and uh, I'll get Chris to schedule the whole thing. So sometime over the next couple of months, we will make it happen. That would be absolutely fantastic. That would be great. Mike, it, it, when we talked about you coming on and we talked about this rapid change conversation, is there anything that you thought would be useful to share with our listeners, but that I just haven't asked you directly? Great question. Um, I, I think it's just that always being in pursuit of something better, you know, not resting on things, always improving, always looking for the next level, not in a in a frenetic sense, but just personal development should never stop. And I, I take it very seriously. My mom died at 53 of cancer. My dad died at 57. Uh, his first sign of heart disease was a fatal heart attack. Uh, you know, Brits, eccentric Brits, great people. And I'm 64 now. So for me, I've well outlived both parents. And in my family, 64 is old age. <laughs> so, uh, you know, every day above ground is a plus. I'm always looking to have fun. I'm always looking to have a blast. And one of the one bits of information, one of the one, how's that? One of the bits of information I offer my corporate clients is this. Always be learning something new, something different. And you don't have to be TV-free like I am. We turned off our TV. We cut the cable for 30 days as an experiment. And that was over eight years ago. We never put it back. But what you can do is if you turn off your television for one hour a day, only one hour of what you would normally watch, and devote it to learning something new, you get nine 40-hour weeks of spare time in a year. What could you learn in nine work weeks? There's a heck of a lot of stuff out there. Make it count. Mike, thank you so much. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure talking to uh, one of the many gods of Hypnos come to Earth in human <laughs> form. And uh, yeah, really, really appreciate it. on behalf of myself, my listeners, uh, really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Howard. I appreciate the time too. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change works. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.com dot works. <laughs>